appreciate y'all being here on this Saturday morning. Uh, chapter 20, gastrointestinal and urologic emergencies. For those that weren't here when I said earlier, uh, the LVAD assignment has been posted online, so go ahead and do your one-page thing, upload it, um, and I promise I'm going to get to the ones you put in before that I've never given you a grade for. They're there, and I'm going to get to them. I promise. So, All right, so here we go. Wrote a song about it. We're going to talk about that and that and that. All right, but we start out every chapter with what? Anatomy and physiology review. I told you when we was in chapter 5, the more you learn these body systems then, the easier the rest of your chapters would be. But I also told you it was a little bit of a reassurance because if it wasn't completely clicking, then you'll have another opportunity, and here it is. Uh, abdominal cavity contains solid and hollow organs that make up your gastrointestinal or GI, genital and urinary systems. What type of pain, and of course this is just review, but what type of pain if a hollow organ is damaged, what type of pain will it produce? Diffuse or all over, right? The patient may have some difficulty saying, I hurt right here, all right? So a solid organ then produces what type of pain? It, yeah, pinpoint, or but it's called something else. Yeah, but it's called something else. Somatic, S-O-M-A-T-I-C, somatic pain. In other words, they can say, I hurt right here. I hurt right here. And they can point it out to you, okay? Um, liver, is that solid or hollow? Where is it located? Right upper quadrant, Okay. So, and the liver holds or can hold up to how much of your total blood volume? 40%. So, if someone has a big red mark in their right upper quadrant and they say, I hurt right here, and their skin is pale, cool, and diaphoretic, what might be the problem? Liver lack, right? They might be bleeding from their liver because of that blunt force trauma. Spleen, where is it at? Left upper quadrant. Okay, is it solid or hollow? What was that yawn word? Solid. solid, yes. Now, liver, spleen, left upper, right upper, solid organs. I hurt right here, right? But might those two organs, if injured, refer their pain? I'm asking it for a reason. Yes. Oh, there you go, yes. <laughs> So the liver, if it's injured, you might see a big red welt right upper quadrant, right? And the skin may be pale, cool, diaphoretic. But they may complain of pain on the right, at the right shoulder, right at the base of the neck. But there'll be no sign of injury or no history of injury to the shoulder. That's because it's following those nerve synapses or the nerve tracks or whatever, the liver can refer its pain to the right shoulder at the base of the neck. That's called, does anybody remember what that's called? It's called KERS, K-E-H-R apostrophe S sign, KERS sign. A history of blood force trauma to right upper quadrant, 
signs that tell you that they have an intra-abdominal bleed from somewhere, pain to the right shoulder at the base of the neck for no apparent reason. It's referring the pain. Alright, with that being said, can the spleen refer its pain? To where? Left shoulder. I don't have a fancy name for that one. Just know that the spleen can refer its pain to the left shoulder. I've seen I've seen that one time in an actual clinical setting. A young girl ran off the road on a motorcycle, hit a culvert, went over the handlebars. Bam, the handlebar hit her right here. Big red mark, big red mark. She's hurting on her left shoulder. No good reason. So she had a lacerated spleen. So pancreas. Is that a solid or hollow organ? Solid. 50 shot. It's solid as well. Where is it located? Depending on what book you're looking at, and you know, it's some in the right upper, some in the left upper, right? But some books also say it's retroperitoneal, right? Behind the peritoneum, that membrane that encapsulates all the organs in the abdominal cavity. But either way, if the if the pancreas is injured, what type of trauma is it typically? Penetrating, Penetrating because it's so deep, right? And then the ovaries, what are they? Solid or hollow? Solid. Okay. And we call the ovaries the female gonad. That's right. Uh-oh. I don't think I... This, this just got my... Come on now. All right. The gastrointestinal system, the GI tract, that's the digestive tract. Now, when we talk about the respiratory emergencies chapter, all of those problems were caused by what? Problems were caused by in the respiratory system. If someone has a condition that's causing them difficulty in breathing, it was probably caused by what? Cigarette smoke. Digestive system, the digestive tract. Just get you. You're gonna see another common theme here. If there's problems with the digestive tract or the GI, what's it caused by typically? Alcohol. Alcohol. There's a picture of your solid organs, hollow organs, the liver, spleen, pancreas, the kidneys. But there again, the kidneys are retroperitoneal. What's that space? Where are the kidneys located? It's in the retroperitoneal space, but I gave you a name of the area that they were located in. Man, it's Saturday morning. The costovertebral angle. The costovertebral angle. That's right. All right. The entire digestive process takes 8 to 72 hours. I would know that time frame if I were you. Eight to 72 hours. Salivary glands secrete saliva to help lubricate the food, and it also begins the breaking down process, uh, saliva does. Once food is swallowed, it moves through the esophagus. What ability does the body have that helps food move through the esophagus? 
peristalsis, those wave-like contractions that push objects through tubular structures in the body, right? Is it only in the esophagus? It's in the intestines as well, right? Remember I told you that's how you could do uh, keggers, right? Do headstand on a kegger and swallow beer. Peristalsis. Intertwined around the esophagus are veins that drain into more complex series of veins which join together to form the portal vein. So um, esophagus kind of has its own little... This isn't technically correct, so don't even write it down. But just know it has its own little circulatory system, if you will, uh, its own veins, and called, and it all leads to something called the portal vein. The stomach secretes hydrochloric acid to break down the food. Hydrochloric acid. How strong is that? Does your book tell you what we call that hydrochloric acid in the stomach? Huh? Stomach acid. Does it give you another name for it? Is that not in your book? Somebody look that up on your phone or something. Pepsin. And tell me what it says. You know, as an old and out-of-date instructor that's not technologically savvy, I'm, I'm encouraged to refer y'all to y'all's phones a lot, you know, because, you know, it's called flipping the classroom. There's, there's a term for it. Yeah. So what is it? What's Pepsin? I don't care where you find it. Sounds like something has to be hard Because of that field. Pepsin? Like peptic acid? Or peptic ulcer? Or... Well, what's pepsin? P-E-P-S-I-N. Uh, Say that again. The chief digestive enzyme. But yeah, I'm The chief digestive enzyme. The chief digestive enzyme. All right. It is an acid in the stomach, too. That is that hydrochloric acid type stuff that is the chief enzyme that breaks down the food. Okay. The stomach can stretch many times beyond its normal size. For folks like me who overeat, uh, and the stomach does absorb some of the material itself. So you dump all the food in, you know, through peristalsis, the food, uh, through peristalsis and saliva, the food comes down through the esophagus, pushes down, gets into the stomach. The, uh, the acid in the stomach plus the just contractions in different parts of the stomach that kind of churn it around into this acid, it turns your food into what? C-H-Y-M-E, chime or chyme, ever how you want to say it. God, dog, I gotta quit using this. See? Quack. Alright. So then it passes through Again, it produces, it turns it into chime, ever how you want to pronounce it, C-H-Y-M-E. It passes or dumps through in small amounts through the pyloric valve, P-Y-L-O-R-I-C, pyloric valve, into the intestines. Is it, does it enter the large intestines or the small intestines first? Small. 
small intestines. Small intestines are made up of three different sections. What's the first one? The duodenum. Is it lined with anything, the duodenum? You talking about cilia? That's going to be more so in the nose and, and, and places like that. But the duodenum is lined with a thick mucus layer. And why do you think it has to have a thicker mucus layer? To protect itself from the acid that, that, that's coming through that pyloric valve with the chyme. That hydrochloric acid or pepsin that's in the stomach. Okay, so when that mucus layer gets thin because you're stressed out really bad or you get certain bacteria, what happens there? The acid begins to do what? Eat through the duodenum. And what do we call that? That's an ulcer. Duodenal ulcers. And they bleed. Okay? But the duodenum is the dumping in area, so to speak, for all the hormones and enzymes that help you break down your food, um, produce the, the energy and uh, things of that nature that you need to to survive and thrive and all those good things. So, so in the duodenum is where the pancreas, what does the pancreas dump into the digestive system? What's the pancreas role? Insulin. Okay. And insulin does what? Yeah, yeah, once the once it's broken down and the carbohydrates or, or simple sugars or whatever or I guess gleaned from the food, then the insulin helps it enter the cells for for uh, for energy production along with oxygen. What does the gallbladder secrete and dump into the duodenum? Bile. What's the uh, Root word for bile. No. Choline. That's right. C H O L E. So, and that comes from the gallbladder, right? So, if the gallbladder gets swollen because of a bunch of alcohol ingestion through years, what do we call that? Cholecystitis. But because the gallbladder holds the bile, produces the bile. Actually, the liver produces the bile, but it's stored in the gallbladder. That's why the gallbladder sits right on top of the liver. Okay? So, all these things are dumped into the, to the digestive process, into the, the, the duodenum. Um, to break down the foods to where you could use them. Alright, the liver assists in digestion by secreting bile, like we just said. It filters toxic substances produced by digestion, and it also creates glucose stores. The liver will store sugar or excess sugars, okay? That's why when we get to the advanced part, we'll talk about an IM injection that you can give that pulls sugar out of the liver called glucagon. The small intestines, uh, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. What happens if we change that E to an I? What is that then? It's one of the three bones that make up the pelvic girdle. 
But uh, they turn chyme into substances that can be absorbed by the capillaries of the small intestines. Where does the majority of absorption take place in the human body? Small intestines. What percent of it? 90%. The other 10% is absorbed where? Large intestines. Also called colon. Chyme is now feces. And the primary role of the large intestine is to get that last 10%. That's the primary role. Okay? And it's the site of bacterial digestion. The spleen is also located in the abdomen, but it really has no digestive function. It's a part of what? Okay. Basically, but what does lymph for the lymphatic system do? Yeah, remember when you, when you go to the doctor because you're feeling sick, what's the first thing he or she's going to do? Squeeze on your neck, put their arm under your old pit, right? What are they feeling for? Swollen lymph nodes because if the lymph system or the lymph, lymph or the lymphatic system picks up some of these foreign particles that are in your body, the bacteria, viruses, or whatever, it causes the lymph nodes to swell. And it's kind of a passive circulatory system. It kind of runs in parallel with your, with your other vessels, so to speak. Assists in the filtration of blood, aids in the development of red blood cells, and serves as a blood reservoir. It aids in the development of red blood cells, but where do we typically produce our new red blood cells at? In the bone marrow, in the long bones. That's correct. As adults, as infants, where red blood cells produced? In the liver. Yep. Man, we, we're talking about some stuff now. The genital system. Uh, obviously, the abdomen also contains and holds some of the reproductive organs. In females, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, uterus, cervix, and vagina. The males, you have the testicles, epididymis, the vasa differentia, seminal vesicles, prostate gland, and the penis. If you didn't know. (laughs) Come on. Now don't flip five damn slides. All right. All right, the urinary system. What does the urinary system do for us? All systems in the body are trying to maintain what? Homeostasis. Homeostasis, some sort of balance in things, right? So what does the urinary system do primarily? Fluid regulation. Intakes should match output, right? So so why if you if you drink so much or drink too much, why do you feel bad the next day? You got too much out. Alcohol kind of dehydrates is almost like a I don't know that it's technically a diuretic but it's going to make you go pee right and you're going to pee more than that beer you drank was right as far as volume that's why you feel bad kidneys and where are the kidneys located or what's located on top of the kidneys I should say adrenal glands and they secrete what epinephrine all right so you have your two kidneys that are located where? 
the costovertebral angle, which is in the retroperitoneal space. Then you have the two ureters that run from the kidneys down to the urinary bladder. And from the urinary bladder, and obviously this is the male example, it passes through the prostate gland. So that's why when, when fellas start having problems with their prostate gland and it swells a little bit, what do you think happens to their ability or their frequency in which they urinate? It gets harder. Maybe they feel like they're about to pee all over themselves and they go and they just dribble a little bit. Things of that nature. So, because it passes through the prostate gland, through the penis, and then out the body. Kidneys, ureter, uh, urethra, I should say. I, I didn't call it by name, but that's the urethra. What else does the urinary system do for us? Filters out waste. A lot of acid, right? What type of acid? Uric acid. Because uric acid in water makes urine. So well, what else does it do? Yeah, the urinary system helps you balance out your long-term pH. And did we ever talk about what pH stands for? What does that mean? pH... Little P, big H. There's a reason why it's a big H. Because H stands for hydrogen. It's the potential for hydrogen is what that stands for. And hydrogen is acid. Come on. Come on. There you go. The urinary system has two main functions. It uh, regulates the electrolytes, water content, and acids of the blood. It removes metabolic waste, drug metabolites, and uh, excess fluids from the body. The kidneys filter 200 liters of blood a day. The kidneys, if you were wondering, filters 200 liters of blood a day. So how many liters of blood does the average adult have? Somewhere in there, ain't Somewhere it? Depends on what book you're reading, right? Let's just say six, okay? And I think there's some slight differences there between male and female. But six liters of blood in your body. And the simple math then, if the kidneys filter 200 liters of blood a day, how many times does your total blood content get filtered? Ish, right? All right. It's fixing to do 18 slides at once. There you go. All right. The kidneys produce hormones that generate new red blood cells as well. All right. Play a major role in maintaining homeostasis. And the brain does exert control over the urge to void. So when someone slips off into cardiac arrest, what's... A lot of times, one of the first things they do, they void, urinate. They lose that control, uh, the ability to control the kidneys and all of the, everything kind of relaxes, right? So they void and quite possibly defecate. It's one of the first things that happens. So you got the renal pelvis, 
the renal cortex, renal medulla. Somebody look in the book and tell me something about the renal pelvis. Tell me something about that. Anything. What might take place there? Hmm? What's the book say? About the renal pelvis. Anything. Where the urine moves through the ureter. Okay. Renal cortex. Tell me something about that. Anything. Okay, so nephrons are found in the renal cortex, and nephrons are the functional units of the kidney, right? That's the part that actually does the filtering, correct? So they're located in the renal cortex. What about the renal medulla? Okay, what, is it, what do these things do, though? Renal medulla, what does it do? Renal cortex, that's kind of, you know, we said that's where the nephrons are located, so we know a lot of actual filtering takes place there, but does any of these parts, the pelvis, cortex, or medulla, do they secrete anything? What does it do? Sends waste materials to the bladder to become. What does? The cortex? The, this says renal Okay. Who knows me? Yeah. One page report on the renal pelvis, cortex, and medulla. One page report renal cortex, pelvis, and medulla. Yeah, sure. No, not three pages. No, sir. One page. I'm hard, but I ain't that hard. People say I'm hard anyhow. I don't believe it. All right, pathophysiology. Acute abdomen. That's a fancy way of saying what? Stomach ache, stomach pains. And it happens all of a sudden, right? It's not a chronic thing with them. What or how many things can cause acute abdomen? A gaggle, right? That's an official term. It means a heap, a bunch. It is a sudden onset of abdominal pain. It indicates peritonitis and irritation of the peritoneum. And again, the peritoneum is what? That's that membrane that encapsulates all of your abdominal organs, right? And by the way, the abdominal cavity is 
Is that a ventral cavity? Is the abdominal cavity a ventral cavity or a dorsal cavity? Both. Ventral. We guessing now, ain't we? Yeah. I'm gonna hit pause. Yeah, I wasn't currently taking guess. <laughs> All right. So we spent way too much time on that. All right. So peritonitis means what? What is that? Inflammation of, of the, the peritoneum. And there's a million different things, obviously, but what's something like if an, a hollow organ gets damaged and it spills its content? Do we remember that, that that's a leading cause or one of the leading causes of, of peritonitis? Do y'all remember that? Because if peritonitis isn't handled, it eventually is going to lead to what? If the problem that's causing peritonitis isn't fixed or handled, what will it lead to? Now, most of us, if we take a stethoscope and we listen to bowel sounds, what will we hear? Noise. Peristalsis. Peristalsis. You'll hear noises. You'll hear abdominal sounds, right? But if peritonitis continues unchecked, it will cause something that means peristalsis stops. So, therefore, nothing's moving. Nobody remembers what that is. All right, because we spent way too much time. Ilias. Ilias. Huh? It is in the book. Yes, it is. Did I spell it right? Look at there. See, I'm right even when I think I'm wrong. Okay, so peritonitis can be caused by infections, penetrating abdominal wounds, severe blunt injury, many diseases, things that affect ultimately the peristalsis. Severe pain is a major symptom. Abdominal tenderness, distension, and the peritoneum consists of two layers. You have the partial and visceral peritoneum. You just need to know that. And again, why does the visceral layer typically lie or touch the organs, whether you're talking about the pleura or the peritoneum? For viscosity? Yeah, as lungs move, as peristalsis happens in the intestines and the the organs kind of move around a little bit, it prevents them from becoming uh, irritated and and hurting. Autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system controls what? Functions that you don't have voluntary control of, right? Remember, autonomic looks a lot like automatic, kind of. It's things you don't have conscious control of. You can't sit here and say, man, I ate that biscuit four or five hours ago. It should be gone by now. Let's speed up digestion. You can't do that. So, Referred pain. What did we call this? I gave you a name for that. Curve sign? Man, it's still on the border, so we erased it. <laughs> Peritonitis usually causes ileus. And when ileus 
happens and all peristalsis stops and then we continue eating, what's the only way that we can get rid of this stuff at that point? Vomitus. And I promise you, if someone is vomiting stuff that's been through their stomach already, gotten into the intestinal tract, it smells like what it is. Get ready. So, hey, listen, a little bit of... When, especially when you first get started until you develop your sea legs, so to speak, in the back of that ambush, you might want to get those little containers of like Vicks, Vapor Rub or something. And then when you run into situations like this, you just dig in that pocket, get a little bit, and just... <laughs> Don't let nobody see you because they're going to laugh at you, all right? But just get a little bit under your nose, and then all you smell is a Vicks Vapor Rub. You don't smell... Chime. Street, a little bit, that's what you call the street knowledge right there now. At least one of y'all is going to do it. Guarantee you. All right. Uh, again, peritonitis, if not corrected, leads to ileus. Peristalsis stops. Nothing moves. There's only one way to get rid of it at that point, and that is through uh, emesis or vomiting. Uh, associated with loss of body fluids. Because if nothing's moving through the small intestines, where does the majority of absorption take place? Small intestines. Eventually going to lead to hypovolemic shock. In patients with diverticulitis or cholecystitis uh, may have substantial uh, elevations in temperature. They start running a fever. Diverticulitis. Where, what is that? Okay, what causes them? Remember, yeah, this remember this is the cheese grater example I gave you. Remember, because of the density and the in the stuff of our foods that we eat and the the way that our foods that we consume are different now than they were a hundred years ago, uh, it makes the feces more dense and harder for peristalsis to move it through. So it creates little pockets or little bubbles into the wall of a colon, right? So it's just like a cheese grater. That's how a cheese grater works, right? You got those little pockets or little indentions in the grate. And when you rub the cheese past it, it, it pulls off a little sliver of cheese and it dumps on the plate, right? Well, uh, with diverticulitis, when the feces passes by that little bubbled out area, which is caused by the density of the food we eat now, it slices off a little piece of that stuff and it stays in the pocket. So it, set, it gets infected because it's nasty. It is. I assume. I, I've been fortunate enough not have it. But, uh, and here's the thing. If someone, as far as you're concerned, if someone has diverticulitis, where will they complain of pain? Well, you would think, right? Why the left lower quadrant? Because there's nothing there but intestines. Left lower quadrant pain typically is diverticulitis. It's not a guarantee. Very few always and nevers, but diverticulitis, they will complain of pain left lower quadrant. Uh, wake up. Wake up. That was nice of him, but I don't know if this is working out. 
<laughs> what do I do with my clicker? My normal clicker. All right. Table 20-1. You need to know that. Because I guarantee you National Registry is going to ask you a question about abdominal pain and want you to diagnose, so to speak. And if you know the condition and where it will hurt, it will help you. Now, not everything we do is for that damn ragged test, though. <laughs> if you know these pain locations, it's going to help you in the field, too. But now, abdominal pain. What can we really do to fix abdominal pains pre-hospital? But again, if you know, yeah, maybe, depending on the root cause, right? Um, but if you know how something works, it's just better. You can critically think better. So you need to know that. Causes of acute abdomen. Any condition that allows four materials into the abdominal cavity can result in peritonitis and acute abdomen. And again, a lot of times that comes from some sort of traumatic injury to um, a hollow organ. It spills its contents. Nearly every kind of abdominal pain can cause acute abdomen, whatever. Bleeding within the GI tract. Blood outside of the vessels, the blood does not, and the body does not like the blood to be outside of the, the veins and the capillaries and the venules and, and, the, and the arteries and arterioles. It's supposed to be inside of the vascular space. Once it gets outside, it's very caustic to the rest of the body. It doesn't like it. So that's why if someone has an intra-abdominal bleed, whether it be from a liver, spleen, whatever, it doesn't matter. If they start bleeding into their abdomen, that's why the body reacts the way that it reacts. What's the abdomen going to do when, when it detects blood in the abdominal space? It's going to get rigid. It's going to I mean, it'll be like hard as this wood here and distended. Why is it doing that? Full blood. It's full of blood, but what's the body trying to do? Yeah. It knows that all right, something's wrong. There's an injury or something, some disease process or uh, injury has caused us to damage. We have an organ that's damaged one way or another. Right. It's trying to prevent further damage because you don't have bones over your abdomen. So that's why it gets rigid and distended, and that's why you know if you palpate that abdomen... And it's hard and sticking up. They're bleeding somewhere. They're bleeding. And if they're bleeding bad enough, the skin will be pale, cool, diaphoretic because of the release of epinephrine. Right. Esophagitis. And it, again, you put I-T-I-S at the end of something, that means it's swollen, right? It is inflammation of the esophagus. Say what? Yeah. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD. What do we call that typically? Acid reflux. Acid reflux, heartburn, whatever. The sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach opens. Allowing stomach acid to move superiorly or up. It ain't supposed to go up, right? Um, a lot of times, when does this become more, what time of day does this become more of a problem? Nighttime. When you're doing what? Lying down. Lying down. That's right. 
Good old gravity kind of helps you overcome that, right? Could result in weakening portions that are more susceptible to bleeding. Heartburn is the predominant clinical finding. And bleeding can occur if the damage is long-term. And again, uh, when, when those vessels in the esophagus start to swell and bleed, that's a lot of times brought about by what? Okay. But also, those are called the portal veins, remember? So portal hypertension helps kind of swell them things out, cause them to turn into varices. Remember esophageal varices, I was talking about those. And they, when what, what's something that really lends itself to making those things possible or what causes them a lot of times? I'm rambling, but I told you earlier, digestive tract, the problem a lot of times is caused by long-term alcohol use or whatever. Uh, but portal hypertension, esophageal varices, that's some of that life-threatening bleeding that comes from the esophagus is going to be secondary to that. Uh, ulcers, uh, we've talked about already. Helicobacter pylori infection to the stomach is what causes the ulcers a lot of times. Chronic use of NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. What is an NSAID that we take a lot? That's one, right? Alcohol and smoking can affect the severity as well. It says here that the... Uh, Peptic ulcer disease and gastritis uh, distributed evenly among the sexes, but more frequently in the elderly, complain of a burning or gnawing sensation in the abdomen, the upper abdomen, right? It might be left or right, or it could be right and left upper quadrants. Nausea, vomiting, belching. Signs and symptoms. Uh-oh. I did it again. Mallory Weiss tear. What did we say that was? Who remembers that from chapter 5? Tear. Esophagus and the... And what predisposes someone to Mallory Weiss? Long-term alcohol abuse. Not use, abuse. And eating disorders. Vomiting is the principal symptom... And then you have Borjavi syndrome occurs uh, during vomiting, similar to Mallory Weiss, but the, esophag the esophagus tears longitudinally, up and down, right? Not sideways. Does it really matter? <laughs> no, it ain't funny. It tear travels entirely through the wall of the esophagus. Occurs more often in men present after a large meal that includes alcohol consumption. It is just a damn wonder that I'm still alive. That's all I know. Esophageal varices, I was talking about a moment ago. 
When the amount of pressure within the blood vessel surrounding the esophagus increases, that's called portal, P-O-R-T-A-L, hypertension. Initially, the patient shows signs of liver disease, and if they're showing signs of liver disease, what might they look like? Yellow skin and eyes, that's jaundice. Then the bear sees ruptures. And what does that look like? Can be life-threatening. They will be vomiting copious amounts of blood, right? How important is it to have your suction? Hemorrhoids. That's the other end. Created by swelling and inflammation of the blood vessels around the rectum. Bright red blood during defecation. So what is hematochesia? Bright red blood in the stool. What's melina? Dark tarry stools, black tarry stools, because that's that's bleeding higher in the digestive process, right? Because it's partially digested. That's why it's black and tarry. <coughs> Gallstones or gallbladder stores digestive juices and waste from the liver. That's that bile. And what is? I don't think we've talked about this. When I was when we was talking about the duodenum and all the things that gets dumped into the duodenum, the bile from the gallbladder enters the digestive process there. But what does that bile do? What does it do? Breaks down fatty foods, fat and grease. That's why if someone has their gallbladder removed, what do they? What can they not tolerate eating anymore? Fried, fried, fatty, greasy foods. Because if they do, they'll, they'll get nauseous and throw up. Because the body can't break that down anymore. And gallstones form into the gallbladder. Sometimes it blocks the outlet. So when you eat that greasy food and the body calls for that bile from the gallbladder, it can't get out. causes pain. Cholecystitis. And typically, you get your gallbladder removed. In severe cases, the gallbladder can rupture. And how bad is that? All that bile goes everywhere, right? Symptoms usually appear 30 minutes after a fatty meal. And at night, GI distress, nausea, vomiting, indigestion, bloating, gas, and belching. Pancreatitis. The pancreas is swollen, right? But what does the pancreas do for us to begin with? It produces two main things. Insulin and... Hmm? It produces insulin and...
look who got These are hormones, right? Which, where specifically in the pancreas are these things produced? Chapter 5 again. Yeah, but it has a specific name. What part of the pancreas produces insulin and glucagon? Anybody? Alright, now, do what? Yeah, the islets of Langerhans. Islets of Langerhans. But now somebody else just said alpha cells and beta cells. Who said that? Alright, so which one does what? The alpha and beta cells and the islets of Langerhans, which is located in the pancreas, produces insulin and glucagon. Alpha cells produce... Beta cells produce insulin. You need to know that. Alpha cells produce glucagon. Beta cells produce insulin. I guarantee told you that'll be on your test. Yep. Beta produces insulin. And the way I remember that is glucagon does have an A in it, right? Mm -hmm. Insulin doesn't have an A in it. Alpha. Mm -hmm. Or you could just learn it. One of the two. <laughs> I always had to come up with crazy little ways to remember crap. All right. So pancreatitis then obviously is inflammation of the pancreas. Uh, severe pain, often radiating Nausea, vomiting, abdominal distension, tenderness. And again, if the pancreas is injured from trauma, it's probably what type? Because it's so deep. It's almost, it's, if it's not retroperitoneal, it's right there at, the, at that point or whatever. What is sepsis? We've said that four or five times today already. It's just a rampant infection, right? Yeah. So they will present, obviously, with a fever. And tachycardia. They'd probably be breathing a little bit deeper, a little bit faster too, in an effort to blow off some of that excess heat. Appendicitis, what's swollen? There you go. Dull, diffuse pain, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, that means I gotta have an appetite, fever, chills, and rebound tenderness. Why will they have diffuse pain? Hmm. Okay. Rebound tenderness. Do we all do we all understand that term? What that means? Like, because if you're having problems, anybody's having problems in their abdomen, again, you're to look at it. And if you see signs of injury in a particular quadrant, you'll palpate that one last. But a lot of times, you'll palpate the abdomen, right? Just as a, a 
diagnostic type thing or whatever. And But if you palpate the abdomen and it causes a little bit of pain, but when you let go and those muscles snap back to the original shape, if that causes intense pain, it's called rebound tenderness. And that tells doctors a bunch of stuff that we ain't smart enough to know. We just recognize it and we pass it on. Rebound tenderness, okay? And if they have an appendicitis, they may have rebound tenderness. It, can a, the pain of appendicitis be referred to where? The umbilicus. We use umbilicus, Alex. That's what I hear. You know what? Let me try something. Bam. Gastroenteritis. What's swollen? And? Medical root word gastro means? Stomach. Enter, E-N-T-E-R, means intestine. So it's the stomach and the intestines. Can be bacteria, can be virus, uh, contaminated food or water a lot of times, food poisoning, diarrhea with with possibility of blood and or pus, abdominal cramping, fever, loss of appetite. There you go. Diverticulitis first recognized around 1900 when the foods that we ate kind of changed. Remember, it started getting more dense. Fiber consumption decreased. The consistency of stools become more solid. Peristalsis had to kick in overdrive, right? Increases the pressure in the colon, and that's when the wall kind of bubbles out a little bit sometimes. That is the diverticula. Fecal matter is caught. Bacteria is formed. Again, abdominal pain, fever. And where will the abdominal pain be? Left lower quadrant. A lot of times. Fever, malaise. What does that mean, malaise? Just fatigue, right? Yeah. Chills. Ulcerative colitis. I think we understand that by now. Genetic stress, autoimmunity. And again, that is inflammation of the colon. Bloody diarrhea, joint pain, skin lesions. IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. You think that's another one of those umbrella terms that I've used, before, that I've talked about before? I think a lot of times if they have an abdominal pain and other associated signs and symptoms and they don't have a clue what's wrong, I think that's when they say, boy, you got IBS. Yeah, it's just my personal opinion, right? Just like fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia. Break that down. What does that mean? Fibro, myo. Myo means muscle. Fibro, you talking about fibers, right? And algae. What's that? So it's pain in the muscles. This is just a generic umbrella type term. 
All right. So anyhow, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, patients with abdominal pain and changes in their bowel habits. Something's changed. Something's different. And it's causing them distress. Hypersensitivity of bowel pain receptors. Uh, hyper-responsiveness of the smooth muscles in the bowel. And then psychiatric disorders sometimes are connected with IBS. A lot of stress, a lot of uh, anxiety, things of that nature. Uh, again, problems typically begin during childhood. Crohn's disease, what is that? Why, if someone has Crohn's disease, what, what happens to them? What do they complain of? What does the book say about Crohn's disease? It's similar to ulcerative colitis, but it involves the entire GI tract and not the anus. Okay. The main part of the GI tract tends to be affected is the ileum, the last portion of the small intestine. No definitive cause. Family history, genetics play a role. The disease results in a series of attacks by the immune system of the GI tract. And uh, before we even go to that, let me just back up. So people with Crohn's disease, do they hurt always? No. Or are they kind of doing their thing, normal day, and then all of a sudden, man, it hits them and they bolt, fold over, right? Well, if they've been diagnosed, they have that, and they have medications that they can take that's going to help kind of release that. But uh, that's Crohn's disease. I think I went one too many again. All right, disease conditions of the renal and urologic system can cause acute abdominal pain as well. From mild to severe, it's usually going to be supportive in nature of the care that you give. Urinary tract infections, UTIs, painful urination. Frequent urges to urinate, difficulty in urination. Um, again, burning sensations, cloudy urine with a foul odor, urinary tract infection, UTI. Kidney stone. What's the medical name for kidney stones? Renal calculi. And they are formed where? In what part of the kidney? Renal pelvis. Oh, look at there. There's something to put on that report. So kidney stones are typically formed in the renal pelvis. And they arise when an excess of insoluble salts or uric acid crystallizes in the urine. That old uric acid, build up a uric acid, either causes kidney stones or what else? Gout. That uric acid build, like in my left ankle, it'll it'll accumulate and it hurts, buddy. I promise you. If that's any indication, I know I don't want the other. I can deal with a hurt ankle. You hear me? (laughs) 
And excess of salts is usually due to insufficient water intake. Come on, don't go to sleep. Kidney stones, calcium stones are more frequent in men. There is a hereditary component. Uh, patients are almost always in severe pain with kidney stones. A lot of times if the pain will start in the costovertebral angle, right? And then as it progresses, the pain will wrap around the flank, around the lateral portion of the abdomen, down to the front, and then down toward the ureter in the in the penis or vagina, whether it's a man or a woman. Why do you think the pain is moving from the costovertebral angle around the flanks to the front and then down? Why is the pain moving? Because that's where the stone's moving. That's right. And it's unilateral pain. If it's bilateral pain, it's typically not a kidney stone. But if they have two stones moving at the same time, just shoot them. <laughs> just shoot them in the head. How many of y'all have ever heard of Jerry Clower? Marcel Ledbetter. Come on now. He's the comedian. You tell the stories about the, the, the Marcel Ledbetter and his brothers and all of them. Anyhow, I don't know the whole story, but he said he went into a house and the, the Ledbetters were there and this, this raccoon got loose in the house and he opened the door and there's this chaos and Marcel said, shoot up in here amongst us because one of us has got to have some relief. If you got two kidney stones, just shoot up there amongst them because somebody has got to have some relief. I'm almost tempted to uh, make y'all go to YouTube and watch Jerry Clower videos. Chronic kidney disease, again, that's something different. An acute problem is something that's right now and may go away. Chronic is progressive and irreversible disease processes uh, that leads to inadequate kidney function. Congenital disorders, prolonged pyelonephritis. Pyelonephritis. Break that down. Pyelo means what? Um. You can look it up. I don't care. What? Neph means what? And I-T-I-S. So pyelo. Pertaining to the kidney. Pyelo. Or pelvis. Pyelo? That don't mean in like infection or nothing like that? It says pertaining to the kidney or pelvis. It's prolonged kidney infections is what that is. CFR, what does it stand for? Chronic renal failure. Chronic renal failure. AF, ARF would be 
acute renal failure. All right. So in chronic renal failure, the nephrons of the kidneys become damaged. They become scarred. They're not really filtering right anymore, right? Waste products build up in the blood because of a lack of ability of these nephrons to do their job. And it says here that systemic complications occur or can develop because of this. What type of systemic complications do you think they would be if the kidneys can't filter toxins out of the blood? What else? Okay. What else? As acid and waste products build up, anything could happen, right? Oh, it definitely could be altered. All right. Pathophysiology of the renal system. Signs and symptoms of renal failure. Altered LOC. They can start seizing, go into a coma, lethargy, nausea, headaches, cramps, signs of anemia, uremic frost. All right. Now I want y'all to tell me, tell me what is uremic frost? The cheeks. If someone has white, looks like they have white powder on their face, problems with the renal system, that's uremic frost. That's dried up pee pee coming out of their cheeks. Oh, gosh. In the most simple terms possible. But that's what it is. Uremic frost. It's done got bad, y'all. All right. Pale, cool, moist skin, edema, muscle twitching, hypotensive, tachycardia, pericarditis. What's swollen there? Pericarditis. Oh. Uh, around the heart? Yeah, pericardium, yeah. All right. This thing kind of gotten bad now, right? Uh, they've lost most of their ability to filter. The kidneys just aren't working, and toxic waste materials build up in the patient's blood. What's the the only option for these people to survive at this point? Dialysis. dialysis. Now, just in your mind, what is dialysis? What, what's happening? They go to a dialysis center. What happens? Okay. The, basically, it's like they hook up an external kidney, right? A machine. You know, they put a, they have a stent or a port in the brachial artery. They plug into that unit with a needle, okay? Pull the blood out, circulate it, pump it back in. Because the, the toxics, the toxins in the system will be fatal if they don't get this done. Some people have to get it once a week. Some people have to get it twice a week, or what have you. Uh, what are some possible complications with this? Okay, they could get infected, I guess. But what are some more short-term problems that, that could be fatal? I mean, think about it. What could happen right there in the center that day that could cause them to die? Y'all thinking too hard. Thinking way too hard. 
you're accessing a artery. They can bleed. They can bleed heavily. That's a common thing that we get called to dialysis centers for, is bleeding from the site. But now, there's something else. There's a lot of cardiac arrests that happen at di- a lot. All right, now that's a relative term, obviously. They ain't five or six of them a day or nothing like that. But it, it's not uncommon for us to go to a cardiac arrest at a dialysis center. Not necessarily from the bleeding. What's, so if they pull the blood out and they filter it, okay, what else might they be filtering out of the blood? What's the other one? Sugar. There you go. People can go into cardiac arrest secondary to hypoglycemia, but maybe they're diabetic and have end-stage renal disease. So it's a real balancing act sometimes. Away, hey, oh, gosh, almighty! Right, hold on. Oh, how will you know? Because you know how I told you, blue bloaters and um, pink puffers sounds like little names that I might have made up or something, and, I, and I'm, I assure you I didn't. There's another. There's something called the PID shuffle, lower abdominal pain. So would it be uncomfortable for her to stand completely straight up and take long steps, right? So bend over a little bit, taking short steps. PID shuffle with a fever, lower abdominal quadrant pain, and a foul odor. Pelvic inflammatory disease. So these are the things that you know. And, and, and go ahead and make a note. Ladies that have had multiple PIDs, or more susceptible to an ectopic pregnancy as well. PID, PID shuffle, ectopic pregnancies all kind of go hand in hand. So therefore, ectopic pregnancies, fertilized egg implants outside of the uterus. What does the word ectopic kind of mean to begin with? It means out of place or outside of it. It's not where it should be. Typically, when the, the egg leaves the uh, ovaries, travels in the fallopian tube, if it's going to be fertilized, it's usually fertilized inside the fallopian tube, but because of the extra uh, estrogen and progesterone is released as a part of the menstrual cycle. The inner liner of the uterus becomes thicker and stickier. So the thought says that it, that egg fertilized in the fallopian tube floats down and implants itself on the side of that sticky uterine wall for development into a baby, right? But uh, an ectopic pregnancy, typically the fertilized egg will implant inside the fallopian tube. That's why it's sometimes called a, a what pregnancy? A tubal pregnancy. Have you ever heard that? Because it's in the fallopian tube. doesn't have to be there, though, even though they typically are. It can implant itself anywhere, and there's your ectopic pregnancy. Again, severe unilateral abdominal, lower abdominal pain, right? 
And if it ruptures, could that be life-threatening? Yes. Absolutely. Epididymis and orchitis. What is orc or orchy? Testicles. swollen. It is an infection that causes uh, uh, inflammation of the epididymis. With orchitis, the infection causes one or both testicles to become enlarged and tender. What are we going to do about that in the back of an ambulance? Position of comfort and take them to the doctor, right? The patient will have a fever and the urine will have a foul odor. Priapism. What is that? Yeah, it's a painful, tender, persistent erection. Usually... Uh, Diseases like leukemia, uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, blunt perineal, blunt perineal trauma. Where's the perineum at? The perineum? Okay. Use of cocaine. Okay. (laughs) We'll give you a priapism. Maintain the patient's privacy and do not make assumptions about the cause. Okay. Well, fella, I don't see your back broke. You must have been doing that blow. I don't know. Benign prostate hypertrophy. Age-related, non-malignant, or non-cancerous enlargement of the prostate gland. Asymptomatic, but may lead to difficulty starting urine flow. Slow, weak urine flow once started. Incomplete emptying of the bladder. Increased urination at night. And urinary retention. Benign prostate hypertrophy. Hypertrophy. How many of y'all watched that movie Green Mile? What was wrong with Tom Hanks? Right? He had benign prostate hypertrophy. You just didn't know it at the time. Testicular torsion. Don't want no part of it. I'm just going to go and throw that out there. A twisting of the testicle. On the spermatic cord associated with sudden onset of scrotal pain and swelling. None of that sounds good. A medical emergency. Don't you doubt it. Especially if the blood vessels get twisted off because then when blood flow stops, the testicles are not getting oxygen. It may uh, may occur with or without blunt trauma. Either way. An aneurysm. What is an aneurysm? Of. Okay. All right. So, and what's a triple A? You know, that's a good guess. Abdominal aortic aneurysm. That's a good guess, though. 
it swells and maybe it starts to leak. Years of uncontrolled hypertension cause that blood to get between the layers of the vessel, right? Um, It swells out, balloons out, maybe starts to leak a little bit. Tachycardia, flank pain, uh, melina, right? But what happens if it pops or ruptures? No, you will die within a couple minutes. It's called insanguation. You will bleed to death within a couple of minutes. Um, if you have that, when you're doing your physical exam, if they have uncontrolled hypertension and they've got a, like a little mass midline in the abdomen, that when you gently palpate it, you feel their pulse in it. You feel their heartbeat in that. Boop, boop, boop. Because that's the aorta that's swollen up that you're feeling, right? So you feel those those pulse waves. If you push it real hard, it's going to pop and they're going to die. Simple as that. All right, with strangulation here, looking in your book, and the slide kind of... All right, a hernia. I went too far. A hernia. What is a hernia? That is correct. Um, That's correct. It does not always produce a mass or a lump in the abdominal wall, but a lot of times it will, okay? Uh, Congenital defect, a surgical wound, the natural weakness in the abdominal wall, a lot of times associated with lifting something a little too heavy, you know, and you'll feel it kind of tear. it says reducible hernias pose little risk and can be pushed back. What do they say in there, really? You've got a little lump, and then you can just push it, and it goes back inside your abdominal cavity, and the lump goes away. But then you lift something else, and poop, it pops back out again. Then you can reduce it, push it back in, right? It says poses a little bit of a problem, but what's eventually going to happen? It's going to become what's called incarcerated. Those muscles in the in the abdominal in abdominal wall are going to become irritated with that loop of intestine coming in and out, in and out. And it's kind of going to swell a little bit, and it's going to trap it out. All right, and that's when it becomes strangulated. That means it's cutting off the blood flow to that loop of intestine now. So as long as you can reduce it, you know, it's all right, but you're eventually going to have to go have surgery, right? Because it's going to become strangulated, and then the blood flow is going to be cut off, and that section of your intestine will die without the blood. So that's when we get to strangulation. And it is a serious medical emergency. What do you think position of comfort is going to be for these people, probably? Anything dealing with the abdomen, not just a hernia, whether it's strangulated or not. Any abdominal, the fetal position, right? On their side with their legs pulled up. That's typically going to be a position of comfort for folks with abdominal problems. The skin may be red or blue right over the little hernia site once it becomes strangulated. 
Seeing signs up remains the same, right? What's the first things you want to make sure of when you approach any scene? Scene safe and you got your what? Do your primary survey. What are you looking for in the primary survey? Life threats. Life threats. Anything that's affecting the airway, breathing, or circulation. If you have a problem with airway, what do you do? Before you go to breathing, right? And so on and so forth. Once you've done your primary assessment, you got your sample history, you got to make a decision. What is that? Is this a priority patient or not? If they're a priority patient, y'all seen how soon? Okay, and what type of physical exam do you do on these priority patients? Rapid, Rapid head to toe, right? What if they're not priority? What type of physical exam do you do? You focus on their chief complaint. Y'all got that. And if someone's going into shock, what's the first thing that's going to tell you that? Orthostatic vital signs. Have we talked about those? What does that mean if you take a set of orthostatic vital signs? Laying down, but not in your order. Because if they can't support blood pressure and you stand them right up, they could go into cardiac arrest, right? Take them, set of vital signs, lying flat. So if you take their BP and they're lying flat at their back and it's 80 over 62, what's going to happen if you set them up? They're not going to be able to provide that enough pressure to get blood to the brain. At best, they're going to pass out. At worst, you working in arrest. We've already talked about that. Bam. Come on now. Go ahead. Get your OPQRST because those are your pain questions, right? Sample history. Anytime you have a patient complaining of abdominal pain, you need to be prepared for the fact that they may do what? Vomit. There's these things called emesis bags. If abdominal pain, get one. Hand it to them right off the bat because it's very likely that they may vomit. Never give them anything by mouth. Don't give them any water or anything because that would promote vomiting, right? Secondary assessment. Uh, again, <coughs> acute abdomen is a serious medical uh, problem. Again, made to, it may take surgery to fix what's going on. Get them to the hospital, supportive care, put them in a position of comfort. Again, anticipate vomiting. Give them oxygen. A lot of times, oxygen might help with the feeling of nausea. We're not doing IVs yet. doing two at a time. All right, adverse effects and complications of renal dialysis. Kind of talked about it a little bit. 
uh, hypotension and muscle cramps. What, why might they start having muscle cramps? Because we're filtering the blood, right? But we're getting the good stuff and the bad, the bad stuff and the good stuff, right? So I told you they can filter the sugar out and cause a diabetic problem. But what controls muscle contractions a lot in the body? Sodium and potassium. Sodium and potassium controls muscle contractions in the body. Y'all can write that down. That's okay because we'll, we'll come back to that. So, if they're filtering the blood and they get too much sodium and potassium out, do you think it might cause muscle cramps? Yeah, it will. Nausea and vomiting, hemorrhage from the access site, infection, altered mentation, air embolism, electrolyte imbalances, myocardial ischemia, or even infarction. I always start with the ABCs, no matter what it is. All right, here's a term you need to be familiar with just in case you see it on your test. Disequilibrium syndrome. Equilibrium means just kind of balanced out, right? So if it's disequilibrium, they're not something's not balanced. Would you agree? Water initially shifts from the bloodstream into the cerebrospinal fluid, mildly increasing intracranial pressure. Uh, during renal dialysis, obviously, keep it in context. But after a few hours, the fluid will re-equilibrate. Uh, re yeah? We'll say that ten times fast. It's going to balance out, okay? And the symptoms will go away. Air embolism, what is that? Air in the vascular space, right? And that's not bad. I mean, that's not a bad... That is a bad thing. If any of the fittings and connections in the dialysis system are loose, air may enter the system producing an air embolism. That will cavitate the pump, right? When it gets to the heart, and there's no blood in the heart because it's filled with air, that is a bad thing. Sudden onset of difficulty in breathing, hypotension. If the embolism is large enough... Cyanosis. They need to be disconnected from the machine, like right then. Bam. 